Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Thank you all for coming. I see a lot of familiar faces. Uh, Probably most of you have already heard me talk about this book uh, in the time I was writing it, but for those of you who haven't, uh, it was originally inspired by an article in the LA Times about uh, the, the central scam of this book, which is, so, uh, I read about it, it was a trial taking place in North Carolina. Some soldiers, a team of like four or five soldiers, had come together to, uh, one soldier was in charge in Afghanistan of paying off the trucking companies there. The, they would hire Afghan truckers because they figured why risk American soldiers or contractors to have them drive out to the forward bases will hire Afghan truckers, pay them in American dollars which they wanted to be paid in and uh, you know we'll, we'll cut our losses. Well this guy's in charge, this one guy was in charge of, was the American soldier in charge of paying these guys and he figured out that he could scam by doing fake payments and uh, writing orders that never went and he, there was a big, there was like millions of dollars in a vault there at the base and in American dollars because that's what they wanted to be paid in. But he ended up getting a hold of this money little by little. He would give it to another guy at the base. The guy would put it into boxes going back to the U.S. that were had a special seal on them so customs couldn't go through them. They would go to this base in North Carolina. At the Army base they had a guy who would open them up, take out the money, and take it to an apartment somewhere in North Carolina. So they got busted, uh, in the true story, they got busted and they said that they, they busted them for a million dollars and they said that they probably got five million. So when I read that story, I was, you know, intrigued by it, and I said, hey, you know, I'd like to write about that. At the same time, I'd been thinking about writing about a con man. I've always been interested in cons and the, the mechanics of them, and, and uh, a gambler, I'm, you know, interested in gambling, <laughs> and so uh, I figured out that it would be, a, I, I, I came up with this character, Petty, uh, sort of loosely based on someone that I knew, and uh, I, uh, Rowan Petty, and I uh, figured that would be a good way to get in to get into this story rather than just retelling the story of the scam to have a, a way to work it into a, a, a larger narrative. And then, you know, once I sat down and started writing, as is usually the case, it just sort of took off, and uh, the character of Tina Fey came in, I don't know how, and that just got bigger and bigger, and so as it happens, you know, that's what happens when you write a book. You just start, at least for me. I didn't plot anything out. I kind of knew what the end was going to be. I began to write, and it all just started coming together. In fact, the the scenes, I don't know, some of you have already read this, the scenes with the soldier uh, in Afghanistan and coming back, those were all added in like more than halfway through the book. They weren't originally supposed to be in there. It was just, I felt like I needed something to create some tension in the slower parts of the book, and so I 
I started, I wrote the first one, I said, that's pretty good. So I added in three or four of those to keep, to cut away from the two main characters and to cut away to something else. And, also, and it adds sort of a rising tension as, as he approaches. But I'm sure that's all very interesting to you, my process. Uh, I, I'll just go ahead and read uh, for about 10 minutes here. So you can look at your watches and when you get bored and figure out how much time is left. Uh, the smack. Do I need my glasses or not? <laughs> See, I'm at that age, like where you... Rowan Petty considered his options. He could watch the Packer game in his room or downstairs on one of the hotel hotel's bars, in one of the hotel's bars. The casino even had a small somnolent sports book where they'd be showing it on five TVs. Today was Thanksgiving though, so he felt like a change of scenery. He was going a little stir crazy after spending the past week holed up in a mini suite, working on a phone, working a phone while staring out at the floor to ceiling windows of what was left of the Reno Strip and the snow dusted hills beyond. It'd be nice to take a walk and eat somewhere besides the hotel's coffee shop. Mrs. Carson, how are you today? Good, good. Great to hear. My name's Bill Miller, and I'm Vice President of the Growth and Income Division of Golden Triangle Mining Company. I believe you spoke with my associate, Mr. Bloodsoe, yesterday. You did? Wonderful. Now, Mr. Bloodsoe indicated that you were interested in more information about the exciting full partnership shares we're currently offering. And if you have two minutes, I can tell you all about them. Great. Here's the deal. Our engineers recently discovered a massive deposit of high-grade ore in one of our mines in Peru. And as a result, we're giving a select group of investors a limited-time opportunity to join one of the fastest-growing and most successful mining ventures in the world. How's that sound? It was all bullshit, of course. There was no mother load, no mine, nothing but a slick website and some expensive stationery. The bottom rung of the scam was a crew of homeless meth heads and alkies in Miami who cold called hundreds of numbers a day in search of rubes gullible enough or lonely enough to sit through the initial pitch. The names of these suckers were passed on to Petty, whose job it was to reel them in, touting a 25% tax-free return on any investment, while at the same time trying to extract as much personal information as possible. Bank accounts, credit cards, social security numbers. Anyone still on the hook after this, he kicked up to Avi, who closed the deals and sent Petty 10% of whatever he took off the marks. Petty wasn't happy about being so low on the totem pole. In fact, it was downright humiliating, especially since it was he who'd shown Avi the ropes on a setup exactly like this one, back when the dude was still peddling steaks door to door and worrying about his next pimple. Petty was 25 then, living in New Jersey. He'd been getting by on his wits since he was 15 and was bringing in enough from various schemes to give his wife and little girl everything they needed, along with some of the extravagances that separated man from beast. A friend of a friend brought Avi in one day and asked Petty to help the kid out. Petty talked to Avi and he seemed to be with it, so he took him under his wing, taught him what was what, and let him wet his beak on a silver scam he was running at the time. Good karma, he figured. Flash forward to now, 15 years later. Petty gets hung up in Sacramento, working a real estate hustle that busts. He heads to Reno to try to recoup his losses at the poker table, but his car breaks down as he hits the city limits. A thousand bucks, the mechanic says, to get it running again. So, a rough patch. He scrolls through his contacts, sees Avi's name, and decides to give him a call to see what sort of action he's got going and to check if there might be room for him. And what does the punk say? You can man a phone, tell the tale, but that's the best I can do. Telling the tale, 
The same goddamn job Petty had given him when he took over, when he took him on way back when. A slap in the face. But at the same time, Petty understood. The law of the jungle was the law of the jungle. Nobody gives a fuck about a loser. He punched another number into the phone, cleared his throat, and launched into his spiel again. Mrs. Fetter, happy Thanksgiving. How are you this afternoon? He barely made it through his introduction before Mr. Fetter got on the line and told him he must be a real asshole trying to pull something like this on a holiday. Petty cut the guy off mid-rant and moved on to the next number on his list. Before he could enter it, his personal phone, not the burner he was using to do business with, rang. The call was from Don O'Keefe, Dandy Don, who'd been a friend of Petty's father. The last Petty heard, Don had dropped way down in class after doing some time. Petty thought about letting the call go to voicemail, but his curiosity got the better of him. Hello, he said. Rowan, Don said. Don, Petty said. I hear you in Reno, Don said. Yeah, Petty said. Yeah, and guess what? I am too. I live here now. Huh, Petty said. Don picked up on Petty's caginess. Okay, okay, he said. You want to know who's been talking? It's like this. I called Avi about a line I have on something, but he said he had all he could handle right now, but you might be interested. Petty got up off the bed and went to the window. A heavy gray afternoon was growing grayer, and down below on the wet sidewalk, a solitary figure, hunched against the cold, marched to his fate with grim purposefulness. Petty touched a finger to the glass and stared at the print it left behind. Avi didn't do favors, so sicking Don on him had to be a joke. Petty couldn't hang up on the old man, however. After his dad ran off, Don kept an eye on Rowan and his mom, slipping them a hundred bucks now and then, dropping off groceries, and making sure the gas and electricity got paid. Petty owed him a modicum of respect for that, so he played along. My plate's full too, he said, but I can spare a minute. Let's meet somewhere, Don said. Can't you tell me about it over the phone, Petty said. It'll be better in person, Don said. I'll buy you a drink and lay it all out. The barely concealed desperation in Don's voice both saddened and repulsed Petty. Today, he said. Why not, Don said. I'm staying with my daughter, and I could use a break from her kids. They scream everything they say. Is that some new thing off TV? I don't know, Petty said. Anyway, Don said, we're eating at 7, so how about 4.30? Petty was staying at the Sands Regency Casino Hotel. It sat two blocks west of Virginia Street, where Reno's other downtown casinos were clustered. With rates half that of the places on Virginia, the Sands appealed to retirees, traveling salesmen, penny slot addicts, and other low rollers who appreciated its clean if slightly worn rooms and the homey, unfussy disposition of its staff. The casino catered to a local crowd, beckoning them with cheap drinks and $5 blackjack dealt on faded felts. Dining options included a 1950s-themed coffee shop serving 24-hour breakfast specials, a piss-elegant Italian steakhouse, and a 1099 Carolina seafood buffet on Fridays. Petty had flopped at worse places. He'd been jumping from cheap hotel to cheap hotel ever since the bank had foreclosed on his Phoenix condo six months ago. But something about being stranded at the sands at this particular moment in time weighed heavily on him. And he found himself slinking around the place with the humiliated air of deposed royalty. He'd recently turned 40, and this fact caromed inside his head when he stared at the cigarette burn on his room's garish polyester bedspread, ate a dollar hot dog for dinner, washed his underwear in the sink, and got hung up on by widows from Des Moines. If the slump was temporary, fine. He'd been down before. What haunted him was the possibility that there was more to this lull than there'd been to the others, that he'd finally used up all his luck. 
because in the end you were only given so many chances. And while everybody took an occasional tumble, the cracks healed more slowly as you got older, allowing what little charm you had left to seep right out of you. Don O'Keefe, for example, 10 years ago, an operator par excellence, at the top of his game, money rolling in from half a dozen hustles. And now, what the fuck? Things started going downhill for him after his wife died. He'd loved her with all his heart, and the loss made him sloppy. He filled the hole she left with booze, filled the lonely hours with gambling, and eventually got popped in Seattle for a stupid rock-in-a-box scam and served eight months in the King County Jail. Dandy Don, who'd never drawn even an overnighter before. He hadn't bounced back after that, had been out six months now and couldn't get anything going. Seventy years old and living on scraps, whatever the hot shots let fall. Former associates whispered behind their hands about him. If they saw him on the street, they crossed to the other side. None of them wanted to look into his eyes. None of them wanted to catch what he had. Petty raised his first drink of the afternoon to the poor bastard, because he himself was down to his last five grand, and if this was it, the end of all good things, he wanted someone somewhere to toast him someday, remembering him at his best. He was sitting in the jackpot saloon, his favorite of the Sands three bars, tended to by a skinny old cowgirl with an ugly smile. She wore her hair in a bright red bouffant to compensate and sported the kind of makeup job department store cosmetics clerks gave women in order to sell them a ton of shit they didn't need. She and Petty had become friendly during his stay. She called him Rowan, he called her Darlin, and he hoped she had something at home that made her happy, a cat or a favorite TV show. He'd showered and shaved after getting off the phone with Don, dried his hair and slapped on some Armani cologne, 90 bucks a bottle. A pair of nice jeans, a dress shirt, his leather coat. He didn't go for pinky rings and gold rope like the Guidos did, preferring to let his watch and shoes do the talking. The submariner he wore these days was a knockoff and his Bruno Mollies were showing their age, but both were plenty good enough for Reno. He'd been watching his drinking since going to work for Avi, trying to take the gig seriously. So his first sip of Black Label was a treat. He swished it in his mouth before letting it slide down his throat. Happy fucking Thanksgiving. You gonna get some turkey this evening, the cowgirl asked him. Honestly, I never liked turkey much, he replied. It's tradition and all, I understand that, but I'd rather have a steak. You're like my daddy, the cowgirl said. He used to tell us, you know why the pilgrims ate turkey? Because they didn't have KFC. Sounds like a funny guy, Petty said. For a mean drunk, the cowgirl said. You ever hear of turducken? That's what, a turkey stuffed inside a duck stuffed inside a chicken, Petty said. The cowgirl laughed and smiled her jagged smile. Other way around, she said, a chicken inside a duck inside a turkey. All right, Petty said, that'll work a lot better. He turned in his seat to survey the casino. Because of the holiday, it was more crowded than it would normally be at 3 p.m. The players at the blackjack table directly in front of him hooted and hollered over the dealer busting, but they were a bunch of suckers. It was a $5 single deck game, which sounded good, because your odds against the house were always better with a single deck than with a shoe, right? Wrong. Not when the payout for a blackjack at the single deck table was six to five instead of the standard three to two. That changed everything. A basic strategy player at a $25 three to two table being dealt out of an eight deck shoe could expect to lose $11.20 over the course of 80 hands. At a six to five single deck table, he'd lose $29. Over the past few years, casinos everywhere had quietly been switching their single deck tables to this version of the game. And even though the changed payout was printed right there on the felt, Joe Schmo, in town for a weekend blowout, still sat down and handed over his hard-earned cash, subscribing to the old dictum that single deck was where it was at. Petty had nothing against a sharper taking off a mark, 
But this swindle was so blatant it depressed him. There was nothing slick about it, nothing skillful. It took no balls. The gaming industry bean counters were simply exploiting the casual gambler's tendency to cling to the common wisdom rather than run the numbers himself. Petty couldn't decide who pissed him off more, the corporate nickel and dimers or the cinches at the table who allowed themselves to be fleeced this way. His head ached thinking about it. He'd been breathing nothing but the recycled air of the hotel for the past week, and the smutty funk of cigarette smoke, desperation, and disappointment had settled into his bones like a cancer. Hoping to preserve the tiny spark of holiday cheer he'd managed to muster, he downed his scotch and hurried for the exit. Chapter 2. About four more minutes. <laughs> the cold goose petty as soon as he stepped outside. He winced and fumbled for the zipper of his coat. Even with his collar turned up and his hands fisted deep in his pockets, he shivered. He didn't have clothes for this weather, had planned to be somewhere warmer by now. The feathery snow that had begun to fall brightened the dirty slush left over from the day before. Delicate flakes mounded on the dented cars and muddy trucks in the sand's parking lot and clung to Petty's eyelashes. He hated snow, hated ice. The antipathy stemmed from a fear of slipping, almost a phobia. The mere possibility of losing his footing made him feel like his skin was too tight. He wasn't so much worried about getting hurt if he fell as he was afraid of looking ridiculous on the way down. He couldn't bear to be laughed at. He set off up forth toward Virginia, carefully placing each step. A car crawled past with his headlights already on. Night was still two hours away, but it seemed later. Clouds obscured the sun, the snow damped the sound, and the steel-gray ponderousness of a premature winter dusk intensified the melancholy carnival come-on of the casino neon up ahead. The street was lined with run-down motels, most of which were boarded up. Those that continued to limp along rented rooms by both the month and the hour, casting a wide net. A tall, thin black chick in a pink down trench coat and crazy high heels stood in the driveway of the Rancho Sierra Motor Hotel. She pretended to be engrossed in her phone, but raised her eyes and smiled whenever a car whooshed by. She was 21, 22, with great lips and great teeth and a long blonde wig that made her look famous. Petty smiled back at her when she stepped out to block his way. How are you, baby, she cooed. Doing great, he said. How are you? Cold, she said. Want to warm me up? She opened her coat to flash him the stars and stripes halter top and denim short shorts she was wearing underneath. In this weather. You had to admire that kind of fortitude. It's tempting, Petty said. So go on and give in, the horse said. Treat yourself for turkey day. How about I treat you instead, Petty said. Let me buy you a drink. Why you want to waste all that time, the horse said. I got a room here. We can cozy up right this minute. I'm old school, Petty said. I like to flirt first. Flirt, the whore repeated, making a what-the-fuck-you-talking-about face. You do understand I'm working, don't you? Sure, Petty said, but I also know Nevada law says you get a coffee break. Ha, the whore said. Listen at you. I like you, old school. She punched a number into her phone and turned away to speak quietly to whoever answered. Petty waited, shifting back and forth from foot to foot. He had a soft spot for hookers. Not the dope fiends or the spooky man-haters but the ones who had their shit together and treated hooking as a business. He'd met some smart whores over the years, some truly sharp ladies. I'll call you, the horse said into the phone. The person on the other end kept talking, and the horse shouted, when are you going to figure out I ain't listening, and ended the call. I don't want to get you in trouble, Petty said. Please, the horse said, don't nobody own this bad bitch. She slipped her arm through Petty's and pulled him close. You got sexy eyes, you know that? Not as sexy as yours, Petty said. Now, mind the ice here. 
As much as he disliked snow, he had to admit that the feathery tumble of the flakes coming down was a pretty sight. He watched them fall through the dregs of daylight as he and the whore walked toward the casinos and wondered if it was true that every one of them was unique or if that was just more of the stupid shit they sold you when you were a kid. The whore went by Tina Fey, like that white lady on TV, but all one word, she said. Petty didn't ask her real name, had no reason to. They sat at a table in the lounge of the Silver Legacy where a guy at a piano sang a Beatles song, then something by Neil Diamond. Tina Fey ordered Kahlua and coffee. I'll have the same, Petty told the waitress. Where are you from, Tina Fey asked him. You mean originally, Petty said. Sure, Tina Fey said. I was born in Detroit, but we moved around, Petty said. He always told whores the truth. They could spot a lie a mile off. My dad was a gambler, my mom was a gambler's wife. Poor thing, Tina Fey said. We followed my dad's luck, Petty said. A couple years here, a couple years there. Chicago, Vegas, Atlantic City. He ran a backroom casino in Philly for a while. Did you like moving around or hate it, Tina Fey said. Would it have mattered, Petty said. I was a kid, nobody cared what I thought. Dad eventually dumped us in Florida and took off with a Mary Kay saleswoman. Must have been the pink Cadillac. And how'd you turn out, Tina Fey said. Growing up like that, Petty said. He shrugged and swept a bit of cigarette ash off the table. So you're a rambler and a gambler too, huh, Tina Fey said. I had a place in Phoenix, but I'm between cities now, Petty said. It's okay, Tina Fey said. The world needs ramblers and gamblers. What about you, Petty said. Where are you from? I'm from Memphis, Tina Fey said. I hear in your voice, Petty said. Yeah, but I've been all over, Tina Fey said. I even went to Mexico, to Cabo San Lucas. How was that, Petty said. Baby, it was like a dream. The ocean and the desert come together like that, Tina Fey said. I laid in the sun, drank margaritas, and fell asleep every night listening to the waves, happy just smelling the air. I told my friend I was with, I said, girl, I could be poor here, I swear to God. You wouldn't need nothing but a hammock, some rice and beans, and all that beauty. She smiled, thinking of it, and Petty saw her real face for the first time, the one you fall in love with. He smiled too. You gonna take me to Cabo San Lucas, Tina Fey asked him, him spoofing her wistfulness. Grab your purse and let's go, he said. A boy down there asked me if I was a model, and he wasn't joking, Tina Fey said. The waitress delivered their drinks. They had whipped cream on them like hot chocolate. Tina Fey scooped hers up and ate it separately, then played around with Petty, licking the spoon. He got her talking about her customers. Whores always had good stories about their Johns and all the kinds of freaky they were. Tina Fey leaned in close and spoke quietly. She had class, didn't want the whole lounge to hear about the zucchini man who liked her to use a squash on him at the same time he was doing her, or the old guy who paid her 25 bucks for used condoms. Petty's favorite was a dude who got on all fours underneath a special blanket he brought with him. He told Tina Fey he turned into a kitten when he was like that, and he'd crawl around and mew for a while before she stuck her feet under the blanket so, so he could lick them clean with his little kitten tongue. It tickled, Tina Fey said, but he got mad if you laughed. Petty checked his watch and saw he had 15 minutes to get to his meeting with Don. He took 100 out of his wallet and slid it across the table. I've got to run, he said. Tina Fey feigned surprise. I thought this was foreplay, she said. This was two friends having a drink, Petty said. If we ever get to foreplay, you'll know it. Tina Fey picked up the money and tucked it into her sequin clutch. When you decide you want something more, you know where I'll be, she said. Petty stood and slipped on his coat. You have a happy Thanksgiving, he said to Tina Fey. You too, she replied, already on her phone. The piano player, a skeleton in an ill-fitting tux, 
tinkled out a sweet rendition of James Taylor's Fire and Rain. He probably hated having to sing it night after night, did it on autopilot while wondering how many smokes were left in his pack, but it was one of Petty's mom's favorites, something he remembered her humming while she washed dishes, so he dropped a five in the guy's jar on his way out. That's it. So, uh, any questions? Yes, Mark. I am. A, I'm extremely uncomfortable. I'm extremely uncomfortable writing sex scenes, and there are some explicit ones in this. Uh, my inspiration in this was a. I've been reading a little bit of Chester Himes, who's a great uh, crime writer, and he writes pretty explicitly about sex. And uh, I kind of took the freedom from. Uh, I, I kind of took the freedom that he had and put it into here to write about. It. I mean, I shouldn't have trouble. I started out in pornography, after all. I, you know, my my first job was working for Larry Flint. And and uh, I was a copy editor, but on the side, I wrote dirty letters, you know, the kind that you, you know, I was driving down the road, and I picked up a hitchhiker, and they supposedly come from readers, but they really come from uh, failed film students from USC who uh, are copy editors at Larry Flint. But uh, yeah, nonetheless, it's still, it's different when you're trying to sell it to a prisoner, you know, <laughs> in a porno mag than when you're trying to sell it to a, a literary uh, reader. So. It, it, it was hard, and uh, the inspiration, uh, you know, I'm a guy. <laughs> Anybody else? Nola? Richard, can you explain about the title? Like, what is the smack? It's all explained in the course of the book, but the smack is uh, an old con game, a very old con game, one of the first ones. It involves coin matching where you go in and you have a partner that the guy doesn't know is your partner and uh, you 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 set up a situation where you are you meet a guy you get become friends with him your partner comes in and acts as a you know, an asshole that the two of you are against are going to beat and you get, you do this gambling game and you work out you it's complicated it's explained but uh, you know it's 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 an old call it's an old con game I you know I like that you call it research because that's what I call it I have been to, I have uh, I have been to Reno many times I've that, that hotel is real I'm going in August and we're gonna stay in the hotel so on Facebook I'm gonna put up photos of all the locations from the book because everything in the book is real is a real spot uh, somewhere from Reno so uh, yeah, I, I, I like to, I do that, you know, I do that here. The hard thing in this book was I had to write about an army base in Afghanistan and I had to write about a, a town in North Carolina where there's an army base and I hadn't been to either. So that, that's weird for me because I usually just write about stuff that's five blocks from my house. So, it, so, you know, because I just feel comfortable and I know that, you know, nobody will ever be able to call me out and say that's not how it was. So, uh, I hope I, you know, I did a lot of research on both of those things, the Army base and this North Carolina town, and I hope that, uh, you know, I don't get that letter that says, like, dude, you've totally, there's no river there, and, uh, you know, the path doesn't look like that, so uh, I'm a little nervous about that. But yeah, anytime Reno, man, awesome place, really good. I was reading the, uh, I think it was in Huffington Post, the interview with you, and you were talking about the difference between 
of writing a short, writing short stories and writing a novel and how dramatically different it is in terms of setting up a character mm -hmm. development as opposed to just doing it for like this, you know, a brief kind of moment where right. there is no development. When you're focused on writing a novel like the Smack, do you, are you still writing short stories like not on the side, but is that part of the process, or do you just totally get into the novel and then go back to the short stories later? Yeah, I, I, I unfortunately, I, you know, I've tried to keep a couple projects going at once, and it just doesn't work. Uh, when I'm working on a project, whether it's a novel or a short story, uh, I just have to be totally into it and that has to be the thing because it's weird but whatever happens to me that day goes into it and then it becomes you know it it, it it starts becoming part of the fabric of the thing and then I can't really go off it or I'm gonna lose that thread and I don't know it's uh, it, I can only work on one thing at a time and uh, and and it is because I'm 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 actually living through it as I'm writing it and if I went off and worked on something else I'd have to kind of recalibrate my thinking and besides the fact that as you mentioned it's two different completely different processes the the effect you're trying to get in a short story or at least that I'm trying to get and the effect I'm trying to get in my novels are are completely different and the, the really the way of thinking is, is is different for me I much prefer writing short stories as I've said a million times I would love to just write short stories they're they're sort of easy for me and uh, you know they're writing novels is much harder and much more of a challenge so uh, 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 unfortunately, I can't write short stories and make a living, and I'm not a teacher or anything. I'm, uh, this is how I make my living, is writing books. So I have to kind of think about that. And uh, also, at the end of the last book of short stories, I really didn't have... I kind of had written out all the short stories that I had uh, that I wanted to write. So I think the next, at least the next two or three books are, are going to be novels, which will make my publisher happy and uh, you know because they want you to to keep building that building those sales building that career anything else come on come on no what kind of kitty does the guy think he is that's a little farther than I thought into it I don't know what, 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 a calico how about that all right <laughs> And why did you have to bring that up? Because that's the one part I was hoping you had zoned out on, you know, and weren't even listening to it. Yeah, David. Talk about your day-to-day process. Do you have like a goal? Like, I'm going to get two pages on day three, you have discipline that you follow? Well, uh, you know, I, I worked a day job until I was, it's 11 years ago. Uh, it's 11 years. I have. I, I 11 years ago. I quit my day job to write full time. I didn't quit. I got laid off when uh, my magazine got bought by another magazine, and you know that's it was consolidation. But luckily, I had my book contract, and I already you know had been planning it out. They just forced me out earlier, and luckily since then I've been able to to do this full time. Uh, I was very nervous when I first started because I'd never written full time. I only wrote at night. When I came home from work, I would sit down and work for a couple hours every night on these short stories. I'd never even written a novel at that point. 
So when it came down to the time to sit down and write the novel, I had to sort of invent a schedule. But luckily, uh, you know, I'm, uh, because I'd gone to work so much, I, I, it was ingrained in me to have a schedule. So now I have it down to where I do like two hours in the morning, then I have lunch and, you know, play with the dog, and then I do two hours in the afternoon and then an hour in the evening, which is usually like editing stuff. So I get about five hours in, you know, that's what I, I strive for, you know, five days a week. Other than that, you know, it's just, if you, if you, can, if you can concentrate that much, you can write, you know, you'll be able to write a book. I mean, they say an hour a day can, you'd be able to do it. But uh, if you can do that much, you will. But I, I still write so damn slow. You know, it still takes me a year and a half to two years to write one of these books, even with that schedule, just because I'm very meticulous and I handwrite. And that's another thing because you're able to... I'm able to screw around a lot and doodle and, you know, I mean, I, you know, you're not just sitting in front of the, I, this time I had to, every time you write a book, they want you to write, all these blogs and stuff want you to give them free stuff. Like, it'll help you sell your book. Why don't you write us an article about, uh, you know, your five favorite con man films? And they're not paying you. They're just like saying, like, you get to put it in our blog and, and you promote your book. So this time I said, I'm going to try to write sitting at the typewriter. I'm not, I mean, at the, the I don't, I, I'm not that bad. I don't have a typewriter. But uh, sitting at the computer, and I'm going to actually, so, so I did all the journalistic stuff, the four, three or four articles that I wrote surrounding the book, on, actually on a, uh, on a, a word processor, and uh, on the computer. <laughs> I'm not that bad either. But, uh, and it, you know, it worked out pretty well. It, you know, it, it, it worked, <laughs> it worked out pretty well. But even when I do the screenplay stuff, I still handwrite that. And that's weird, because most screenwriters, and, you know, they sit down in front of the, the thing, and for some, I just, I'm just connected to that, having the pencil and the paper, and that's the way I like to do it. I can make changes quicker. The, when you work on a computer, you delete stuff. Oops. And if, you, if you're handwriting, it's still there. Like, oh, what the hell did I, you know, you have it, you know, two pages back that you crossed out, you can go back to it and put it back in, or you know, it's always there on a on when you're when I'm working on a word processor, I'm constantly deleting stuff. So sometimes you delete stuff that turned out to be good. So that's a lot more than you asked for, but there you go. Anybody else? Alright, so I guess I'll sign books now. Yeah. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.